For any of you just joining us, I welcome you. My name is Joel. We're starting a new book this morning, the Old Testament book of Esther. I invite you to turn there. It's the last of the historical books. If you can find the middle where Psalms is and you back up two addresses, you'll find yourself in the book of Esther. Now, Esther is a wonderful story. I want to encourage you guys to actually read it outside of here. You can actually probably sit down and read it one setting. And I'll remind you that you shouldn't depend on your pastor to know your Bible for you. You need to know your Bible for yourself to even know if I'm actually telling you the truth of the word. I'm sure that you're going to be absolutely rewarded by this true drama that unfolded in human history. Esther was this Jewish orphan girl whose beauty and grace capture the heart of the king. But friends, this is far more than just a Cinderella story. Esther's great story doesn't stop at the marriage. Esther ends up becoming the most powerful woman in all of Israel's history. Because afterwards, she will risk all to save her people from seemingly certain extinction. We're going to enjoy this story. I mean, Esther is a true heroine. And Haman, the villain, well, he's as bad a baddie as you can find, as sinister a scoundrel. He is as evil an egomaniac as you'll find anywhere in human history. So when elegant Esther outwits horrible Haman, when he's hoisted upon his own petard, we're all going to be overjoyed. Are you ready to begin? Okay, but before we start, I need to provide us an illustration to help us lean into Esther. Isn't silence awkward and uncomfortable? Welcome to Esther chapter 1. Now hear the word of our God. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels Vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti 
also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zathar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before king who has wares. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his own people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we ask that you will awaken our ears that we may hear. Speak to us the word that is needful so that we might in turn be able to speak with instructed tongues, able to sustain a weary soul with a word in season in our own day. We come to you in the name of your son, Jesus, who not only upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, but who also meets those with, who humble themselves with that same word. We bow before your word, and we ask that you'll send your spirit to raise to life that which is dead, to cut out any cancer that kills, to cleanse that which is polluted, to mend that which needs healing. Hear us, because our time is short, our need is great. Speak, O Lord, for your servants here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, it's entirely possible that you're asking how anyone can preach for Mester 1. I mean, what do you do with a Persian party scene that turns into a royal squabble? God is not mentioned. And none of his people are even found here in this text. And the reason is that God has stopped speaking and God's people are insignificant. 
This story takes place long after Israel's demise. The temple's been destroyed. The exile has already happened. King David and King Solomon are as distant to the Persian Jews as Martin Luther and Calvin are to us, to give you perspective. Now, there were some Israelites who, in the reign of Darius, right before Ahasuerus, actually returned to Israel, the promised land, and they rebuilt the temple. But guess what? God hasn't showed up. No glory has filled the temple. Many Jews, in fact, stayed in Persia because God is silent and seemingly absent. Esther is actually the last of the historical books, and some date it as late as 331 B.C., and if accurate, that means Esther was written about 100 years after God stopped speaking. Malachi was the last prophet to speak in the New Testament until John the Baptist comes on the scene. That's a period of 400 years of divine silence. That's the worst kind of silence if you're a believer. And those in Persia like Esther, we see they have no voice. But friends, in the silence, God is present and active. That's what we need to see. Friends, Esther is more than a story about an amazing woman who saved God's people. She's not even the central character, submissive savior, though she may be. The savior of this story is the silent God whose name is never even mentioned once in this entire story. You don't hear anything of or from God from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10. The point is God's providence, his working out of human history behind the scenes. God is in all the details of everything that happens in our world so that in the end all things work together for his glory and for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I want to ask you as we start, as we embark in Esther, do you believe in God's providence? So let me ask you, do you believe in God's providence in times when peace like a river attendeth my way? Do you believe it when sorrows like sea billows roll? You actually believe in God's providence when the waves are crashing and you can't see him or hear him. Friends, God is present even when he seems most absent. That's why I want us to spend June memorizing and meditating on Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. I invite you to turn to the last page in our bulletin right under the fellowship study at the very bottom of the page. I want us to read and recite together this June verse that's found at the bottom. The bottom of the fellowship page, right down here. Let us all recite together. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Hmm, amen. God's presence is important for us to take in as we consider our own divine silence of this day. Have you watched the news? Did our secular media or secular culture, does it giving any credit to God as the on-the-scenes author of human history? 
Yeah, well, I can promise you it's not. Long before REM lamented losing my religion, John Lennon led us to imagine there's no heaven, only sky. Friends, we've arrived. A recent social commentator wrote that we live in a culture which will have no truck with claims such as religious miracles or the existence of God. These are dismissed as superstitious beliefs of a bygone primitive age of myth and bigotry. I think she's right. And as I reread Esther, the absence of any mention or acknowledgement of God stood out. But something else stood out to me which I hadn't seen before. It actually seemed less ancient pagan and more modern Western. Persia, in this scene and throughout the book, there's no mention anywhere of the Persian gods, the Persian deities. There's nothing about pagan worship going on in Persia. There's no salutation to the supernatural, nothing about the spiritual realm, the whole book. Friends, Esther's Persia is not Daniel's Babylon, where believers are commanded to bow before graven images or forbidden to pray to God. Persia is described as a thoroughly secularized state, much like ours is becoming. And God remains silent, even as pagan Persia suppresses the truth. And even as their immorality becomes greater and greater. But the good news is, in the end, God works through his people to win the day. Think that Esther can help us in our day where Christians are becoming more and more the minority? Over and over, the Bible teaches us that Christians have greater impact on this world when we don't have the power. When we find ourselves, as Peter says, as outcasts, as exiles, as sojourners. When we're content to remain that way by showing the watching world that this world is not our home. When we learn to dismiss the lies and reject the promises of this age. When we become like Abraham and seek a better city whose builder is God. Now, for the sake of expediency and so that you don't have to suffer my lisping, stammering tongue trying to pronounce all these folks' names, I'm not going to reread the text along the way like normal. Plus, a few of you had enjoyed too much my inability to pronounce Mephibosheth last week. So I'm just going to go right through the text, only mentioning certain verses. And our first point this morning is politics and parties, politics and parties. And we'll see the secular state boasts loudest during the divine silence. We're introduced. The story begins. We're introduced to a king and a kingdom that is vying for the hearts of God's people. We first meet Ahasuerus. I take that back. We meet the Ahasuerus. The author wants us to know that Ahasuerus is not just any emperor, as amazing that is, that is. He is the greatest ruler on the planet. He's also known as Xerxes. You may have heard about him from movies. And his empire was unmatched in glory in date to history, in this history. And to prove it, that he's so great, Ahasuerus throws a six-month party. Can you imagine this nation throwing a six-month party? You'd have to be in a coma to not catch how great he is and how wonderful. Did you hear the Persian propaganda machine? Verse 3, he's parading his army before the peoples. Imagine for six months straight, every day you'd hear the trumpets. You'd hear the marching. You'd feel the chariots rumble, see the dust clouds. 
you would see an army that historian Herodotus numbered in the millions. Oh, and by the way, the Persian war machine is gearing up for war against the Greeks right now. Here's the invitation. Trust in the military. Trust in our military. That's not all. That's not the only invitation. Actually, I listened to folks freaking out over the debt sling over the last couple of weeks. Not a problem when you've got a guy like Ahasuerus running the show. He's got so much in the treasury that he just spills it out before the people so they can see all of his wealth. He wants to dazzle them. Do you hear the invitation here in our text? Trust in our wealth. And you think the political signs I saw one the other day that are praising politicians are just sometimes way too much? That's nothing. Imagine the signs on display for the great, majestic Ahasuerus, especially when he decides, I'm going to throw a seven-day feast for everybody. <coughs> this generous king wants to show he cares for even the great and the small. Verse 5. I think this is the loudest voice, the loudest invitation. Trust in our benevolent leader. So there you are. What would you do as a believer living in prosperous Persia? Do you think it would be easy to get comfortable on earth, to get settled? Wouldn't it be easy to say, ah, God wants me to have a comfortable life here and now, preparing me for the greater joys and comforts of heaven? Actually, Ahasuerus doesn't want you thinking about the heavenly reality. That's what secularism does. Listen again to the description of the garden court in verses 6 and 7. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Ahasuerus has brought heaven down to earth. Streets paved with gold, I gotcha. Everywhere you sat, everywhere you walked, the ground you walked upon in his garden, was made of materials that each and every one of us would lock in a safe. Was your mind actually drawn to temple imagery? One commentator notes that in all the Old Testament, only the description of the tabernacle and Jewish temple received similar treatment. Ahasuerus is saying, you don't need heaven. You don't even need a temple pointing to it. Man can create heaven on earth. Ahasuerus has created a new and better Eden, and you don't need God. Friends, we can come pretty close to recreating Eden in our day if you have the wealth, but our hearts will not be satisfied. Actually, we see the problem is the hearts of men have remained the same. Our next point is the silliness of secularism, and the author wants us to start laughing. Ahasuerus has recreated Eden, but it's pretty clear that marital relations have improved none since the fall. <laughs> and we should be thinking about the fall in Genesis 3 because our story begins in a garden overflowing with abundance and surprise, surprise, a woman's disobedience brings an end to the whole party. Now don't anybody get mad at me like I have no sympathy for Vashti. 
I can imagine as well as you can the condition of this all-male congregation on the last day for free wine who want to ogle his wife. I can imagine that. I do have sympathy for her. Ahasuerus is not the great guy he makes himself out to be. He spent half of his year, half the year, parading great wealth, great riches before the people, but it's not enough, he's found. You can gain the world in order to impress people. You can show off your cars, you can show off your clothes, your cash. It'll never be enough. You can have all the applause of people, but it'll never be enough. That's why Ahasuerus stops loving his wife and decides now he's going to treat her like a trophy. And no surprise, Vashti won't submit to her husband. Paul had something to say about this, didn't he? Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Husbands, Paul calls us to lay down our lives like the second Adam. Not throw our wives under the bus like the first Adam did. Paul calls wives to respect, to respect their husbands, to submit to them as to the Lord. Paul's actually showing us why we need the heaven reality, Christ and his bride, of which our marriages are only a picture. We need that vision. Paul says we need to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Brothers, there are times when our wives are not so lovable. And I stand as living proof that husbands are not worthy of submission. But God, but Jesus is worthy of our love and submission. Do you see why the supernatural is actually necessary for marriage to even work? We see the silliness of marriage when it's stuck solely in secularism here in this scene. Apart from God and the gospel, Vashti cannot respect her husband. And without the God and God and gospel forgiveness, Ahasuerus cannot restore her, but instead he responds in kind and he gives her the permanent silent treatment. Like a house of cards, it's all starting to come down. Our king is not the moral leader advertised, and his government is a joke. I mean, it began with his drinking law, which you couldn't disobey, right? Drink as much or as little as you want. Talk about a control freak. How can you disobey this law? But he's not in control, and he's trying to grasp for it. He's not in control. We see a secular mindset leaves him ruled by anger and insecurity. Our embarrassed king then seeks advice from his quote-unquote wise men. We see his advisors are an insecure, cowardly lot who need to hide behind the law in order to reinforce their status. I kind of I read Memekin. He, he, I think he's the original Chicken Little. Anybody remember that story when you're a kid? You know, the baby chick that has an acorn falls on his head and ah, the sky is falling. He runs to the king to tell the king that it's worse than he could ever imagine. Memekin does the same thing. He says, "King, this is worse than you realize. The queen's refusal is a display of contempt that has universal implications." Notice. All the alls, the word all, starting in verse 16. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. 
Then we can say, and it's inevitable, that every wife in the whole world is going to hear about Vashti, and they're all going to join in together in some huge proto-feminist movement and turn on their husbands. So they give the king a plan. How are they going to fix society? Maybe can suggest, let's pass a new law. I'm glad we Americans never fall into that trap. They pass a law to make every man the master of his own house. Now, if the big concern was protecting the king's public image, what do you think of this solution? They send out the Persian Pony Express with news of Vashti's snub in every single language so that everybody in the empire is going to hear about it. Great plan, right? And the lesson that a woman can resist a husband's command is completely lost because they go and pass another edict like the drinking law, a law that they're powerless to enforce. Uh, Any of you husbands game to try and enforce this when you get home? Honey, I went to church today and Pastor Joel preached from Esther 1 and I found out in the Bible that there is a law that says you must honor me and treat me as the master of the house. Please don't do that. And if you want to try it, first write down in your bulletin right now that I'm book solid on marriage counseling for the next five years and I have no spare rooms in my house. Go home and build a doghouse first, okay? No, the point is this king and his inebriated legislators pass a silly law that cannot be revoked. You can't revoke this law. The Medes and the Persians, they have this thing where once a law is passed, you can never take it back. And in chapter 2, we're going to find it's years later. And like Cher, he's wishing, if I could turn back time, I'd take back those words that hurt you, and you could stay. He's regretting a drunken decision. So what can we learn from this? Well, we see that the rich and powerful of the secular age, they try to create the world they want. And Psalm 2, go home and read it, tells us that God sits in the heavens, and what does he do? He laughs at their silliness. I was actually thinking this last night while I was finishing up this sermon. It started to thunder. I heard this rumbling in the sky, and I was hearing God laughing. Now, I know an unbelieving scientist who might be here might say, well, Pastor Joel, actually the air temperature and lightning channel, it reaches temperatures of 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And after the flash, you've got to see the air cools, you know, and it contracts and it creates this sound wave that we hear as thunder. And I say, you sound really smart. <laughs> and I'm sure there's data to prove that. And I'm no Luddite. But science still only understands maybe 1% of our world at best. And I still hear my Heavenly Father laughing. Laughing at our rulers, our own rulers, who are passing silly marriage laws in our day. Go ahead and listen to their silliness and see where it gets you. Me? I'm listening because God is not silent, actually, to those who believe. How can I say that? Well, we're going to sing it. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears... All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Friends, God gave us Esther 1 to show us that even the most powerful empire on the planet, when it sets itself against God Almighty and tries to rule in his world, they end up looking sad and silly. 
they end up sad and looking silly. And they cannot stop the advancement of God's perfect plan because of God's providence. And that's our final point, promises and providence. Our secular society, it promises lasting joy and satisfaction by elevating that which is trivial, saying that material possessions can define us. Wealth can bring us joy and satisfaction. Earthly leaders and laws can protect us and keep us safe. Friends, God has such better promises. And his providential care is the only true insurance policy you will find while you're walking this earth. I'm going to give you a peek at what is to come. Let's imagine again being a Persian Jew in Esther chapter 1. You're not enjoying this. The rich and powerful are becoming more and more so. They're passing laws, living it up, partying on the king's bill. And oh, by the way, that's your tax dollars at work and you're going to pay for this later. Oh, and rumor has it that war is on the horizon. And the headline news is, ah, the changing of marriage laws. Wait a minute, this sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Sorry. Back to Persia. To live in a world with such values would be very frustrating. You'd be asking, as you sat in that minority, where are you, God? Yet God is silently working, and you could have never seen what happens by the time we reach chapter 2. There's a three-year gap, by the way, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Persia, Ahasuerus is going to take his vast army into Greece and going to be humiliated, which is actually going to open the door for the rise of the Greek empire. And the Greeks, you know what they're going to do? They're going to demand all their subjects have a universal language, which actually paves the way for the gospel to be spread. Not possible under the Persians, and also for me to have a Greek New Testament on my shelf. Chapter 1 also creates this marital vacuum to be filled in chapter 2 by a beautiful girl named Esther. God has been positioning this beloved child to be in place when a time comes when he needs someone to save his people. Oh, and all those chosen people you don't hear a peep about in chapter 1, before it's all over, you're going to have lots of Persians becoming Jews as his Old Testament church begins to grow and expand. Friends, it's all God's plan. It's all God's providence. But most important is that God had promised that from this seemingly insignificant people, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent and establish a lasting kingdom. Our story shows that despite God's times of silence, God is still unfailing in all of his promises because of his providential care. And I know maybe he may seem silent to you right now. Maybe you're going through a time of divine silence. But you have an advantage that the Persian Jews didn't. We have New Testament fulfillment. And for homework, I want you to go home and read Mark chapter 6, where you're going to find a king. Actually, Mark quotes from Esther here. You're going to find a king with striking parallels to Ahasuerus. King Herod is going to host a big feast to impress people. Though Herod has to be feeling pretty good about himself because his girl actually shows up for the party. Herod will quote Ahasuerus verbatim, promising this girl, offering her half the kingdom. And like Persia, Persia's Haman, who's coming up, Herodias, 
seeks to destroy God's people because she doesn't like God's rules about marriage. Things had not changed after that 400 years of silence except Mark shows us in that chapter a new king has come. There in the wilderness, this king is going to look upon Herod's people with compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he's going to set them on green pastures. He's going to teach them. He's going to feed them to show that God is going to provide all that they need in this life. And I know you know I'm talking about that king is Jesus, and he continues to do that through his church today. Of course, the hard part for us in the 21st century is that Jesus' power to watch over us isn't the tangible type promoted by our earthly rulers. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus took up a cross. But he conquered death, and he would declare triumphantly in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You notice the bookends of that passage? Christ claims all authority. He says that he's always present. Sounds pretty tangible, right? Pretty visible. And then he disappears, leaving all of his followers looking up into the sky. That's the great paradox for us as Christian pilgrims in our secular day. Ringing in our ear is Christ's assurance that he's ever-present and all-powerful even when he seems most conspicuously absent. Friends, our time and place in history may not make a lot of sense right now. It may even seem out of control of your life, but friends, God is not silent. He's speaking to you today through his word. You have his promises right now through his word. We see from Scripture that God is using us and God is actually using the ungodly to bring all of history to culmination in Jesus Christ. And we simply need to remember in God's providences and we need faith in his great providence. As I close, let me just say one of the great secrets of faith is that we easily forget that faith grows best in times of silence. Faith grows best when God does not seem present. When faith wrestles in the dark to hold on, that's when faith gets stronger. Faith that says, I'm going to turn away from the illusions of this age and submit myself to the true king. And yes, this king is worthy of all your submission, all your obedience. Like Ahasuerus, Jesus has called us all, great and small, to his feast. And he called us because he too takes delight in his bride. But he did not see us as a commodity just to feed his ego. In fact, it's quite the opposite. (laughs) We were ugly. But instead of giving us the permanent silent treatment, he laid down his life so each of us could be beautiful. We have little problem sympathizing with Vashti's refusal to come to Ahasuerus. But friend, you have no reason to stay away from Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever loved you more or better than this king. So I encourage you, to tune out the noise of this age and start listening for your father and his reign in our world. And thank him that he is in total control and fulfilling all of his perfect purposes for you. And pray for him to spend the spirit of the risen Christ to his people so that we might be equipped to do the things he's planned for us in such a time as this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. 
Oh, we come to you, our great Father, who art in heaven. And we just want to praise you for the sending of your Son. He is the true King and worthy of all of our love and submission. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for subduing us to yourself, for ruling and defending us, and for restraining and conquering all of yours and our enemies. And we just want to thank you for your spirit on this Trinity Sunday, who has given us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, and hearts that grow in affection for you each day. Be with us as we leave here in our various callings. Help us to tune out the ear, tune our ears to your voice and tune out the voices that seek to turn us away from you. Will you point us in wisdom's way and give us eyes of faith in those thunderstorms to see you laughing with our King at your right hand. Grant that we might respond in faith and obedience to you and one day receive that crown of life that you have promised to those who love you, your bride. And it's in King Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.